Chapter 5, The Book of Buried Treasure This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Buried Treasure by Ralph Delahaye Payne Chapter 5, The Wondrous Fortune of William Phipps The flaw in the business of treasure hunting, outside of fiction, is that the persons equipped with the shovels and picks on the ancient charts so seldom find the hidden gold. The energy, credulity, and persistence of these explorers are truly admirable, but the results have been singularly shy of dividends the world over. There was a genuine satisfaction, therefore, in sounding the name and fame of the man who not only went roving in search of lost treasure, but also found and fetched home more of it than any other adventurer known to this kind of quest. On the coast of Maine, near where the Kennebec flows past Bath into the sea, there's a bit of tidewater known as Monsweeg Bay, hard by the town of Wiscasset. Into this little bay extends a miniature cape, pleasantly wooded, which is known as Phipps Point. And here it was that the most illustrious treasure seeker of them all, William Phipps, was born in 1650. The original Pilgrim Fathers, or some of them, were still hale and hearty, the innumerable shiploads of furniture brought over in the Mayflower had not been scattered far from Plymouth, and this country was so young that the oldest families of Boston were all brand new. James Phipps, father of the great William, was a gunsmith who had come over from Bristol in Old England to better his fortunes. With true pioneering spirit, he obtained a grant of land and built his log cabin at the furthest outpost of settlement toward the eastward. He cleared his fields, raised some sheep, and betimes repaired the blunderbusses with which Puritan and Pilgrim were wont to pot the aborigine. The first biography of William Phipps was written by Cotton Mather, whom the better you know, the more heartily you dislike for a canting old bigot who bootlicked men of rank, wealth, or power, and was infernally active in getting a score of hapless men and women hanged for witchcraft in Salem. Cotton Mather deserves the thanks of all good treasure seekers, however, for having given us the first-hand story of William Phipps, whom he knew well and extravagantly admired. In fact, after this hero had come sailing home with his treasures, and because of these riches, was made Sir William Phipps and Royal Governor of Massachusetts by Charles II. He had his pew in the old North Church of Boston, of which Reverend Cotton Mather was pastor. But this is going ahead too fast, and we must hark back to the humble beginnings. His faithful mother yet living, wrote Mather in his very curious Magnalia Christi Americana, had no less than twenty-six children, whereof twenty-one were sons, but equivalent to them all was William, one of the youngest, whom, his father dying, was left young with his mother, and with her he lived, keeping his sheep in the wilderness until he was eighteen years old. Then William decided that the care of the farm and the sheep might safely be left to his twenty brothers, and he apprenticed himself to a shipwright who was building on the shore near the settlement those little shallops, pinnacles, and sloops, which our forefathers dared to trade up and down their own coast as far as the West Indies, mere cockle shells manned by seamen of astonishing temerity and hardihood. While well, he worked with hammer and heads, this strapping lump of a lad listened to the yarns of skippers who had voyaged to Jamaica and the Bahamas, dodging French privateers and running afoul of pirates who stripped them of cargo and gear, and perhaps it was then that he first heard of the treasures that had been lost in wrecked galleons or buried by buccaneers of Hispaniola. At any rate, William Phipps wished to see more of the world and to win a chance to go to sea in a ship of his own. Wherefore he set out for Boston after he had served his time, having an accountable impulse upon his mind, persuading him, as he would privately hint unto some of his friends, that he was born to great matters. 
22 years old, not yet able to read and write, young Phipps found work with a ship carpenter and studied his books as industriously as he plied his trade. Soon he was wooing a young gentlewoman of good repute, the daughter of one Captain Roger Spencer, and there was no resisting this headstrong suitor. They were married, and shortly after this important event, Phipps was given a contract to build a ship at a settlement on Sheepscot River, near his old home on the Kennebec, where having launched the ship, Cotton Mather relates, he also provided a lading of lumber to bring with him, which would have been to the advantage of all concerned. But just as the ship was hardly finished, the barbarous Indians on that river broke forth into an open and cruel war upon the English, and the miserable people, surprised by so sudden a storm of blood, had no refuge from the infidels but the ship now finishing in the harbor. Wherefore he left his intended lading behind him, and instead thereof carried with him his old neighbors and their families, free of all charges, to Boston. So the first thing he did after he was his own man was to save his father's house, with the rest of the neighborhood from ruin. But the disappointment which befell him from the loss of his other lading plunged his affairs into great embarrassment, with such as he had employed him. But he was hitherto no more than beginning to make scaffolds for further and higher actions. He would frequently tell the gentlewoman, his wife, that he should yet be captain of a king's ship, that he should come to have the command of better men than he was now accounted himself, and that he would be the owner of a fair brick house in the Green Lane of North Boston. Inasmuch as William Phipps would have been a very sorry scoundrel indeed to run away for the sake of a cargo of lumber and leave his old friends and neighbors to be scalped, it seems as Cotton Mather was sounding the timbrel of praise somewhat overloud. But the parson was a fulsome eulogist, and for reasons of his own he proclaimed this roaring, blustering seafarer and hot-headed royal governor as little lower than the angels. Here and there Mather drew, with firm strokes, the character of the man, so that we catch glimpses of him as a live and moving figure. He was of an inclination, cutting rather like a hatchet than a razor. He would propose very considerable matters, and then so cut through them, and no difficulties be put by the edge of his resolution. Being thus of the true temper for doing of great things, he betakes himself to the sea, the right scene for such things. Phipps had no notion of being a beggarly New England trading skipper, carrying codfish and pine boards to the West Indies, and threshing homeward with molasses and jitters in the hold, or coasting to Virginia for tobacco. Man of metal won prizes by bold strokes and large hazards, and treasure-seeking was the game for William. Among the taverns of the Boston waterfront he picked up tidings and rumors of many a silver-laden galleon of Spain that had shiverer timbers and this or that low-lying reef of the Bahama Passage, where there was neither buoy nor lighthouse. Here was a chance to win that fair brick house in the green lane of North Boston, and Phipps busied himself with picking up information until he was primed to make a voyage of discovery. Keeping his errand to himself, he steered for the West Indies, probably in a small chartered sloop or brig, and prowled from one key to an island to another. This was in the year 1681, and the waters in which Phipps dared to venture were swarming with pirates and buccaneers who had cut his throat for a doubloon. Morgan had sacked Panama only eleven years before. Tortuga, off the coast of Haiti, was still the haunt of choice. A lot of cutthroats as ever sailed blue water, and men who had been plundering and killing with Pierre Grande. Bartholomew Portuguese and Montebars the Exterminator was still at their old trade afloat. Mariners had not done talking about the exploits of Lolanus, who had found $300,000 worth of Spanish treasure hidden on a key off the coast of Cuba. He it was who amused himself by cutting out the hearts of live Spaniards and gnawing these morsels, or slicing off the heads of a whole ship's crew and drinking their blood. A rare one for hunting buried treasure was this fiend of a pirate. When he took Maracaibo, as Esquimeling relates in the story of his own experiences as a buccaneer, 
Lilanus, who never used to make any great amount of murdering, though in cold blood ten or twelve Spaniards, drew his cutlass and hacked one to pieces in the presence of all the rest, saying, If you did not confess and declare where you have hidden the rest of your goods, I will do the like to all your companions. At last, amongst these horrible cruelties and inhuman threats, one was found who promised to conduct him and show the place where the rest of the Spaniards were hidden. But those that were fled, having intelligence that one discovered their lurking holes to the pirates, changed the place, and buried all the remnant of the riches underground, insomuch that the pirates could not find them out, unless some other person of their own party should reveal them. From this first voyage undertaken by Phipps, he escaped with his skin on a certain amount of treasure, what just served him a little to furnish him for a voyage to England, says Mather. The important fact was that he found out what he sought, and he knew where there was a vast deal more of it. A large ship, well-armed and manned, was needed to bring away the booty, and Captain William Phipps intended to find backing in London for the adventure. He crossed the Atlantic in a vessel not much unlike that which Dutchmen stamped on their first coin. And no sooner had his stubby, high-pooped ark of a craft cast anchor in the Thames than he was buzzing ashore with his tale of the treasure wreck. It was no less a person than the king himself whom Phipps was bent on enlisting as a partner, and he was not to be driven from Whitehall by lords or flunkies. With bulldog persistence, he held to his purpose month after month until almost a year had passed. At length, through the friends he had made at court, he gained the ear of Charles II, and that gay monarch was pleased to take a fling at treasure hunting as a sporting proposition, with an eye also to a share of the plunder. He gave Phipps a frigate of the King's Navy, Rose, of eighteen guns and ninety-five men, which had been captured from the Algerine Corsairs. As captain of a king's ship, he recruited a crew of all sorts, mostly hard characters, and sailed from London in September 1683, bound first for Boston, and thence to find a treasure. Alas, for the cloak of piety with which Cotton Mather covered William Phipps from head to heels, other accounts show convincingly that he was a bullying, profane, and godless sea-dog, yet honest withal, and as brave as a lion, an excellent man to have at your elbow in a tight pinch, or to be in charge of the quarter-deck in a gale of wind. The real Phipps is a more likable character than the stuffed image that Cotton Mather tried to make of him. Well, in Boston Harbor in the Rose, Captain Phipps carried things with a high hand. Another skipper had gotten wind of the treasure and was about to make sail for the West Indies in a ship called Good Intent. Phipps tried to bluff him, then to frighten him, and finally struck a partnership so that the two vessels sailed in company. Refusing to show the Boston magistrates his papers, Phipps was hailed to court where he abused the bench in language blazing with deep sea oaths and was fined several hundred pounds. His sailors got drunk ashore and fought the constables and cracked the heads of peaceable citizens. Stead Boston was glad when the Rose frigate and her turbulent company bore away for the West Indies. There was something wrong with Phipps' information, or the Spanish wreck had been cleaned of her treasure before he found the place. The Rose, and the good intent, lay at the edge of a reef somewhere near Nassau for several months, sending down native divers and dredging with such scanty returns that the crew became mutinous and determined on a program very popular in those days. Armed with cutlasses, they charged aft and demanded of Phipps that he join them in running away with the ship to drive a trade of piracy in the South Seas. Captain Phipps, with the most undaunted fortitude, rushed in upon them, and with the blows of his bare hands, felled many of them, quelled all the rest. It became necessary to careen the rose and clean the planking all fouled with tropical growth, and she was beached on a desolate Spanish island. The men were given shore liberty, all but eight or ten, and the rogues were no sooner out of the ship than they all entered into an agreement, which they signed in a ring, the round robin, that around seven o'clock that evening, 
they would seize the captain and those eight or ten, which they knew to be true to him, and leave them to perish on the island, and so be gone away into the South Seas to seek their fortune. These knaves, considering that they should want a carpenter with them in their villainous expedition, sent a messenger to fetch unto them the carpenter who was then at work upon the vessel, and unto him they showed their articles, telling him what he must look for if he did not subscribe among them. The carpenter, being an honest fellow, did with much importunity prevail for one half hour's time to consider his matter, and returning to work upon the vessel, with a spy by them set upon him, he feigned himself taken with a fit of the colic, for the relief whereof he suddenly ran into the captain in the great cabin for a dram, where, when he came, his business was only in brief to tell the captain of the horrible distress which he had fallen into, but the captain bid him as briefly return to the rogues in the woods and sign their articles and leave him to provide for the rest. The carpenter was no sooner gone than Captain Phipps, calling together the few friends that were left him aboard, whereof the gunner was one, demanded of them whether they would stand by him in this extremity, whereto they replied they would stand by him if he could save them. And he answered, By the help of God, he did not fear it. All their provisions had been carried ashore to a tent made for that purpose, about which they had placed several great guns to defend it in case of any assault from Spaniards. Wherefore Captain Phipps immediately ordered those guns to be silently drawn and turned, and so pulling up the bridge, he charged his great guns aboard and brought them to bear on every side of the tent. By this time the army of rebels came out of the woods, but as they drew near the tent of provisions, they saw such a change of circumstances that they cried out, We are betrayed, and they soon confirmed in it, when they heard the captain with a stern fury call to them, Stand off, ye wretches, at your peril. He quickly cast them into more than ordinary confusion when they saw him ready to fire his great guns upon them. And when he had signified unto them his resolve to abandon them unto all the desolation which they had proposed for him, he caused the bridge to be again laid, and his men began to take the provisions on board. When the wretches beheld what was coming upon them, they fell to very humble entreaties, and at last fell down upon their knees, protesting that they never had anything against him, except only his unwillingness to go away with the king's ship upon the South Sea design. But upon all other accounts, they would choose rather to live and die with him than any other man in the world. However, when they saw how much he was dissatisfied at it, they would insist upon it no more, and humbly begged his pardon. And when he judged that he had kept them on their knees long enough, he, having first secured their arms, received them aboard. But he immediately weighed anchor, and, arriving at Jamaica, turned them off. This is a very proper incident to have happened in a hunt for a hidden treasure, and Cotton Mather tells it well. One forgives Phipps for damning the eyes of the Boston magistrates, and likely enough they deserved it, when it is recalled that the witchcraft trials were held only a few years later. Having rid himself of the mutineers, Captain Phipps shipped other scoundrels in their stead, there being small choice at Jamaica where every other man had been pirating or was planning to go again. His first quest for treasure had been a failure, but he was not the man to quit. So he filled away for Hispaniola, now Haiti and San Domingo, where every bay and reef had a treasure story of its own. The small island of Tortuga off that coast had long been the headquarters of the most successful pirates and buccaneers of those seas, and Frederick A. Ober, who knows the West Indies as well as any living man, declares 
Not only that Cuba, the Isle of Pines, Jamaica, and Hispaniola are girdled with Spanish wrecks containing, as yet unrecovered, millions and millions in gold and silver, but also that, during the successive occupancies of Tortuga by the various pirate bands, great treasure was hidden in the forest, and in the caves with which the island bounds. Now and again, the present cultivators of Tortuga find coins of ancient dates, fragments of gold chains, and pieces of quaint jewelry cast up by the waves or revealed by the shifting sands. It is not without reason that the only harbor of the buccaneers was called Treasure Cove, nor for nothing that they dug the deep caves deeper, hollowing out lateral tunnels and blasting holes beneath the frowning cliffs. The island now belongs to Haiti, the inhabitants of which have not the requisite sagacity to conduct an intelligent search for the long-buried treasure, and as they resent the intrusion of foreigners, it is probable that the buccaneers' spoils will remain an unknown quantity for many years to come. Captain William Phipps lay at anchor off one of the rude settlements of Hispaniola for some time, and his rough and ready address won him friends, among them a very old Spaniard who had seen many a galleon pillaged by the pirates. From this informant, Phipps fished up a little advice about the true spot where lay the wreck which he had hitherto been seeking. That it was upon a reef of shoals a few leagues to the northward of Porta Plata, upon Hispaniola, a port so called, it seemed from the landing of some of a shipwrecked company with a boat full of plate saved out of their sunken frigate. On the very old map of Hispaniola, reproduced herewith, this place is indicated on the north coast as Port Plate, and due north of it is the spirited drawing of a galleon which happens to be very nearly in the position of the sunken treasure, which the old Spaniard described to Captain Phipps. The Rose Frigate sailed in search of the reef and explored it with much care, but failed to find a wreck. Phipps was confident that he was on the right track, however, and decided to return to England, refit, and ship a new crew. The riff-raff which he had picked up at Jamaica in place of the mutineers were hardly the lads to be trusted with a great store of treasure on board. At about this time, Charles II quit his earthly kingdom, and it is to be hoped found another kind of treasure laid up for him. James II needed all his warships, and he promptly took the Rose Frigate from Captain Phipps and sent him adrift to ship for himself. A man of less inflexible resolution and courage might have been disheartened, but Phipps made a louder noise than ever with his treasure story and would not budge from London. He was put in jail, somehow got himself out, and stood up to his enemies and silenced them, all the while seeking noble patrons with money to venture on another voyage. At length, and a year had been spent in this manner, Phipps interested the Duke of Albemarle, son of the famous General Monk who had been active in restoring Charles II to the throne of the Stuarts. Several other gentlemen of the court took shares in the speculation, including a naval man, Sir John Narborough. They put up 2400 to outfit a ship, and the king was persuaded to grant Phipps letters of patent or a commission as a duly authorized treasure seeker, in return for which favor his majesty was to receive one-tenth of the booty. To Phipps was promised a sixteenth of what he should recover. This enterprise was conceived in 1686, and was so singularly like the partnership formed ten years later to finance the crews of Captain Kidd after pirates' plunder, that the Earl of Bellamont, Lord Chancellor Summers, the Earl of Shrewsbury, and William III may have been somewhat inspired to undertake this unlucky adventure by the dazzling success of the Phipps Syndicate. In a small merchantman called the James and Mary, Captain Phipps set sail from England in 1686, having another vessel to serve as a tender. Arriving at Port de la Plata, he hewed out a large canoe from a cottonwood tree, so large as to carry eight or ten oars, says Cotton Mather, with the making of which porigua, as they call it, he did, with the same industry that he did everything else, employ his own hand and adds, and ensure no little hardship lying abroad in the woods many nights together. The canoe was used by a gang of native divers quartered on board the tender, 
Some time they worked along the edge of a reef called Boilers, guided by the story of that ancient Spaniard, but found nothing to reward their exertions. His crew was returning to report to Captain Phipps, when one of the men, staring over the side into the wonderfully clear water, spied a sea feather, or a marine plant of uncommon beauty, growing from what appeared to be a rock. An Indian was sent down to fetch it as a souvenir of the bootless quest, that they might, however, carry home something with them. This diver presently bobbed up with the sea feather, and therewithal, a surprising story, that he perceived a number of great guns in the wiry world where he had found the feather, the report of which great guns exceedingly astonished the whole company, and at once turned their despondencies for their ill success into assurances that they had now lit upon the true spot of ground which they had been looking for, and they were further confirmed in these assurances when upon further diving the Indian fetched up a sow, as they styled it, or a lump of silver worth perhaps two or three hundred pounds. Upon this they prudently buoyed the place, that they might readily find it again, and they went back unto their captain, whom for some while they distressed with nothing but such bad news as they formerly thought they must have carried him. Nevertheless, they so slipped the sow of silver on one side under the table, where they were now sitting with the captain, and hearing him express his resolutions to wait still patiently upon the province of God under these disappointments, that when he should look on one side he might see that odd thing before him. At last he saw it, and cried out with some agony. What's this? Whence comes this? And then with changed countenance they told him how and where they got it. Then said he, Thanks be to God we are made. And so away they went, all hands to work, wherein they had this further piece of remarkable prosperity, that whereas if they had first fallen upon that part of the Spanish wreck where the pieces of eight had been stowed in bags among the ballast, they had seen more laborious and less enriching times of it. Now, most happily, they first fell upon that room in the wreck where the bullion had been stored up, and then so prospered in this new fishery, that in a little while they had, without the loss of any man's life, brought up thirty-two tons of silver, for it was now come to measuring silver by tons. While these jolly treasure-seekers were hauling up the silver hand over fist, one Adderley, a seaman of the New Providence in the Bahamas, was hired with his vessel to help in the gorgeous salvage operations. Alas, after Adderley had recovered six tons of bullion, the sight of so much treasure was too much for him. He took a share of the Bermudas and led such a gay life with it that he went mad and died after a year or two. Hard-hearted William Phipps was a man of another kind, and he drove his crew of divers and wreckers, sailors keeping busy on deck and hammering from the silver bars, crust of limestone several inches thick, from which they knocked out a whole bushel of pieces of eight which were grown therein too. Besides that incredible treasure of plate in various forms, thus fetched up from seven or eight fathoms under water, there were vast riches of gold and pearls and jewels, which they also lit upon. And indeed, for a more comprehensive invoice, I must but summarily say, all that a Spanish frigate was to be enriched withal. At length the little squadron ran short of provisions, and most reluctantly Captain Phipps decided to run for England with his precious cargo and return the next year. He swore all his men to secrecy, believing that there was more good fishing at the wreck. During the homeward voyage, his seamen quite naturally yearned for a share of the profits, they having signed on for monthly wages. They were for taking the ship to be gone and lead a short life and a merry one. Phipps argued them out of this rebellious state of mind, promising every man a share of the silver, and if his employers would not agree to this, to pay them from his own pocket. Up the Thames sailed the lucky little merchantman, James and Mary, in the year of 1687, with 300,000 pounds sterling freightage of treasure in her hold, which would amount to a good deal more than a million and a half dollars nowadays. Captain Phipps played fair with his seamen, 
and they fled ashore in the greatest good humor to fling their pieces of eight among the taverns and girls of Wapping, Limehouse, and Rotherhite. The king was given his tenth of the cargo, and a handsome fortune it was. To Phipps fell his allotted share of a sixteenth, which set him up with sixteen thousand pounds sterling. The Duke of Albemarle was so much gratified that he sent that gentlewoman, Mrs. William Phipps, a gold cup worth a thousand pounds. Phipps showed himself an honest man in an age when sea morals were exceedingly lax, and not a penny of the treasure, beyond what was due him, stuck to his fingers. Men of his integrity were not over-plentiful in England after the Restoration, and the king liked and trusted this brusque, stalwart sailor from New England. At Windsor Castle he was knighted, and it was now Sir William Phipps, if you please. Judge Sewell's diary contains this entry, Friday, October 21st, 1687. I went to offer my Lady Phipps my house by Mr. Moody's, and to congratulate her preferment. As to the former, she had bought Sam Wakefield's house and ground last night for 350 pounds. I gave her a gazette that related her husband's knighthood, which she had not seen before, and wished his success might not hinder her passage to a greater and better estate. She gave me a cup of good beer, and thanked me for my visit. Sir William would have still another try at the wreck, and this time there was no lack of ships and patronage. A squadron was fitted out in command of Sir John Narborough, and one of the company was the Duke of Albemarle. They made their way to the reef, but the remainder of the treasure had been lifted, and the expedition sailed home empty-handed. Hatterley of New Providence had babbled in his cups, and one of his men had been bribed to take the party of Bermuda wreckers to the reef. The place was soon swarming with all sorts of crafts, some of them from Jamaica and Hispaniola, and they found a large amount of silver before they stripped the wreck clean. The king offered Sir William a place as one of the commissioners of the Royal Navy when he was homesick for New England and desired to be a person of consequence in his own land. His friends obtained for him a patent as High Sheriff of Massachusetts, and he returned to Boston after five years' absence to entertain his lady with some accomplishment of his predictions and then built himself a fair brick house in the very place which was foretold. The fair brick house was of two stories with a portico and columns. It stood on the corner of the present Salem Street, then the Green Lane, and Charter Street, so named by Sir William Phipps in honor of the new charter under which he became the first provincial or royal governor. There was a lawn and gardens, a watch house and stables, and a stately row of butternuts. North Boston was then the fashionable or court end of the town. The Puritans and Pilgrims were seething with indignation against the royal government overseas. The original charter under which the colony of Massachusetts Bay exercised self-government had been annulled. Charles II was determined to bring all the New England colonies under the sway of a royal governor. The question of taxation had also begun to simmer a full century before the Revolution. Sir William Phipps found his birth of high sheriffs a difficult and turbulent business, and... The infamous government, then rampant there, found a way wholly to put the execution of his patent. Yea, he was like to have his person assassinated in the face of the sun before his own door. This rough ship carpenter and treasure seeker weathered the storm and rose so high in the good graces of the throne that in 1692 he carried to Massachusetts the new charter signed by William III, by virtue of which he became the first royal governor of that colony. And... As an administrator, he was no less interesting than when he was cruising off the coast of Hispaniola. Manners of the quarter deck he carried to the governor's office. His fists were as ready as his tongue, and his term of two years was enlivened by one lusty quarrel after another. In no wise ashamed of his humble beginnings, 
He gave a dinner to his old friends of the Boston shipyard and told these honest artisans that if it were not for his service to the people, he would be much easier in returning to his broad axe again. Hawthorne has given a picture of him in the days of his greatness. A man of strong and sturdy frame, whose face has been roughened by northern tempests and blackened by the burning sun of the West Indies. He wears an immense periwig flowing down over his shoulders. His coat has a wide embroidery of golden foliage, and his waistcoat likewise is all flowered over and bedizened with gold. His red rough hands, which have done many a good day's work with a hammer and adze, are half covered by the delicate lace ruffles at his wrists. On a table lies his silver-headed sword, and in the corner of the room stands his gold-headed cane, made of a beautifully polished West India wood. Cotton Mather helps to complete the presentment by relating that he was very tall beyond the common set of men, and thick as well as tall, and strong as well as thick. He was in all respects exceedingly robust, and able to conquer such difficulties of diet and travel as would have killed most men alive. Nor did the fat wear and two he grew very much in his later years take away the vigor of his motions. As a fighting seaman and soldier, Sir William Phipps saw hard service before he was made royal governor. In 1690, he was in command of an expedition which made a successful raid on the French in Arcadia, captured Port Royal, and conquered the province. Among the English state papers in the public record office is his own account of the feat of arms of his expedition against Quebec. In March 1690, he wrote, I sailed with seven ships and 700 men, raised by the people of New England, reduced Arcadia in three weeks, and returned to Boston. It was then thought well to prosecute a further expedition. 2,300 men were raised, with whom, and about 30 ships. I sailed from New England on 10th August 1690, but by bad weather and contrary winds did not reach Quebec till October. Frost was already so sharp that it made two inches of ice in a night. After summoning Count de la Frontac and receiving a reviling answer, I brought my ships up within musket shot of their cannon and fired with such success that I dismounted several of their largest cannon and beat them from their works in less than twenty-four hours. At the same time, fourteen hundred men who had been landed defeated a great part of the enemy, and by the account of the prisoners, the city must have been taken in two or three days. But the smallpox and fever increased so fast as to delay the pushing of the siege till the weather became too severe to permit it. On my leaving Quebec, I received several messages from French merchants with the best reputation, saying how uneasy they were under French administration, and how willing they were to be under their majesties. In a narrative of the expedition against Quebec, written at the time, is this passage. Whilst these things were doing on shore, Captain William Phipps with his men of war came close up to ye city. He did acquit himself with ye greatest bravery. I have diligently inquired of those that know it, who affirm that there was nothing wanting in his part, either as to conduct or courage. He ventured within pistol shot of their cannon, and soon beat them from thence, and battered ye town very much. He was for some hours warmly entertained with their great guns. The vessel wherein Sir William commanded had two hundred men. It was shot through in a hundred places with shot of twenty-four pound weight. Yet through ye wonderful providence of God, but one man was killed and two mortally wounded in that hot engagement which continued ye greatest part of ye night, and ye next day several hours. Another letter written by Sir William Phipps, addressed from Boston to William Lathwaite, soon after he was made governor, shows him in a light even more engaging. The witchcraft frenzy was at its height, and only three weeks before this date, October 12, 1692, fourteen men and women had been hanged in Salem. This letter, as copied from the original document, runs as follows. On my arrival I found this province miserably harassed by a most horrible witchcraft, 
were possession of devils which had broken in upon several towns. Some scores of poor people were taken with prenatural torments, some were scalded with brimstone, some had pins stuck into their flesh, others were hurried into fire and water, and some were dragged out of their houses and carried over the tops of trees and hills for many miles together. It has been represented to me as much like that of Sweden thirty years ago, and there were many committed to prison on suspicion of witchcraft before my arrival. The loud cries and clamor of the friends of the afflicted, together with the advice of the deputy governor and council, prevailed with me to appoint a court of or and terminer to discover what witchcraft might be at the bottom and whether it were not a possession. The chief judge was the deputy governor, and the rest people of the best prudence and figure that could be pitched upon. At Salem in Essex County, they convicted more than twenty persons of witchcraft, and some of the accused confessed their guilt. The court, as I understand, began their proceedings with the accusations of the afflicted persons, and then went upon other evidences to strengthen that. I was in the east of the colony throughout almost the whole of the proceedings, trusting to the court as to the right method of dealing with cases of witchcraft. But when I returned, I found many persons in a strange ferment of dissatisfaction, which was increased by some hot spirits that blew upon the flame. On inquiry into the matter, I found that the devil had taken upon him the name and shape of several persons who were doubtless innocent, for which cause I have now forbidden the committal of any more accused persons. And them that have been committed I would shelter from any proceedings wherein the innocent could suffer wrong. I would also await the king's orders in this perplexing affair. I have put a stop to the printing of any discourses on either side that may increase useless disputes, for open contests would mean an unextinguishable flame. I have been grieved to see that some who should have done better services to her their majesties and this province have so far taken counsel with passion as to declare the precipitancy of these matters. As soon as I had done fighting the king's enemies, and understood the danger of innocent people through the accusations of the afflicted, I put a stop to the court proceedings till the king's pleasure should be known. It was Governor Phipps who suppressed the witchcraft persecutions, and special court that had passed so many wicked death sentences was shorn of its powers by his order. Other prisoners were later acquitted, and 150 released from jail. No sooner was this burly figure of a man finished with the witchcraft business than he was leading a force of Indian allies against the French. His birth and youth in the East had rendered him well known to the Indians there, says Cotton Mather. He had hunted and fished many a weary day in his childhood with them, and when these rude savages had got the story that he had found a ship full of money, it was now become all one a king. They were mightily astonished at it, but when they further understood that he was now become the governor of New England, it added a further degree of consternation to their astonishment. He was too strenuous a person, was this astonishing William Phipps, to remain tamed and conservative when there was no strong work in hand. With that gold-headed cane of his, he cracked the head of the captain of the Nunsuch frigate of the Royal Navy, and with his hard fist he pounded the collector of the port, after swearing at him with such oaths as better befitted a buccaneer than the governor of the province. His quarrels arose from a dispute over the authority of Sir William to lay down the laws he pleased. By virtue of his commission as vice-admiral of the colony, he held that he had the right to judge and condemn naval prizes. The collector claimed jurisdiction, and when he refused to deliver a cargo of plunder brought in by a privateer, the governor blacked his eyes for him. As for the naval skipper, Captain Short, his experience with the Phipps' temper was even more disastrous. He refused to lend some of his men the man a cruiser, which the governor wished to send after coastwise pirates. When next the twain meet, Captain Shirt was first well thrashed, then bundled off to prison, and from there skipped home to England in a merchantman.
Such methods of administration had served admirably well to rule those mutinous dogs of seamen aboard the Rose Frigate, but they were resented in Boston, and after other altercations, Governor Phipps found it necessary to go to England to answer the complaints, which had been piling up in the offices of the Lords of the Council of Trade and Plantations. He sailed in his own yacht, a brigantine built in a Boston shipyard, and we may be sure that he was ready to face his accusers with a stout heart. Hutchinson, in his History of Massachusetts, analyzed the trouble as follows. Sir William Phipps' rule was short. His conduct when captain of a ship of war is represented very much to his advantage, but further talents were necessary for the good government of a province. He was of a benevolent, friendly disposition, at the same time quick and passionate. A vessel arrived from the Bahamas with a load of fustic, for which no bond had been given. Colonel Foster, a merchant of Boston, a member of the council, and fast friend of the governor, bought the fustic at such price that he was loth to give up the bargain. The collector seized the vessel and goods, and upon Foster's representation to the governor, he interposed. There was at that time no court of admiralty. Sir William took a summary way of deciding this case, and sent an order to the collector to forbear meddling with the goods, and upon his refusal to observe orders, the governor went to the wharf, and after warm words on both sides, laid hands upon the collector, but with what degree of violence was controverted by both. The governor prevailed, and the vessel and goods were taken out of the hands of the collector. There had been a misunderstanding also between the governor and Captain Short of the Nonsuch frigate. In their passage from England a prize was taken, and Short complained that the governor had deprived him of part of his share or legal interest in her. Whether there were grounds for it does not appear. The captains of men of war stationed in the colonies were in those days required to follow such instructions as the governors gave them relative to their cruises and the protection of the trade of the colonies, and the governor, by his commission, had power, in case of any great crime committed by any of the captains of men of war, to suspend them, and the next officer was to succeed. The governor required Captain Short to order part of the men belonging to the Nunsuch upon such service which I do not find mentioned, probably to some cruiser, there being many picaroons about the eastern coast, but he refused to do it. This was ill taken by the governor, and meeting Captain Short in the street, warm words passed, and at length the governor made use of his cane and broke Short's head. Not content with this, he committed him to prison. The right of a governor to commit by his own warrant had not then been questioned. From the prison he removed him to the castle, and from those on board a merchant bound to London, be delivered to the order of one of their majesty's principal secretaries of state giving the master a warrant or authority to do so the vessel by some accident put in at portsmouth in new hampshire sir william who seems to have been sensible of some irregularity in these proceedings went to portsmouth required the master of the merchantman to return him the warrant which he tore to pieces and then ordered the cabin of the ship to be opened secured short's chests and examined the contents short was prevented going home in this vessel went to New York to take passage from thence for England, but Sir F. Wheeler, arriving soon after at Boston, went for him and carried him home with him. The next officer succeeded in the command of the ship until a new captain arrived from England. Short was restored to the command of as good a ship. King William refused to depose the famous treasure finder without hearing what he had to say in his defense, and Sir William stoutly swore that those whom he had punished got no more than they deserved. 
A strong party had been mustered against him, however, and he waged an uphill fight for vindication until death, the one foe for whom he did not think himself a match, took him by the heels and laid him in a vault beneath the church of St. Mary of Wilnot, London. A guidebook of that city, published in 1708, contained this description of the memorial place therein. At the east end of the church of St. Mary of Wilnot, near the northeast angle, is a pretty white marble monument, adorned with an urn between two cupids, the figure of a ship, and also a boat at sea, with persons in the water, these beheld by a winged eye, all done in basso relief, also the seven medals, as that of King William and Queen Mary, some with Spanish impressions, as the castle, cross-portent, etc., and likewise the figures of a sea-quadrant, cross-staff, and this inscription, Near this place is interred the body of Sir William Phipps, knight, who in the year 1687, by his great industry, discovered among the rocks near the banks of Bahama, another side of Hispaniola, a Spanish plate ship which had been under water forty-four years, out of which he took in gold and silver, to the value of three hundred thousand sterling, with a fidelity equal to his conduct, brought it all to London, where it was divided between himself and the rest of the adventurers, for which great service he was knighted by his then majesty, King James II, and at the request of the principal inhabitants of New England, he accepted of the government of the Massachusetts, in which he continued up to the time of his death and discharged his trust with that zeal for the interest of the country and with so little regard to his own private advantage that justly gained the good esteem and affection of the greatest and best part of the inhabitants of that colony he died the 18th of february 1694 and his lady to perpetuate his memory hath caused this monument to be erected it is far better to know the man as he was rough hewn hasty unlettered but simple and honest as daylight than to accept the false and silly epitaph of cotton mather that he was a person of so sweet a temper that they who were most intimately acquainted with him would commonly pronounce him the best conditioned gentleman in the world after he had wrested his fortune from the bottom of the sea in circumstances splendidly romantic he used the power with which his wealth gained for him wholly in the service of the people of his own country during his last visit to London, when he had grown tired of being royal governor, he harked back to his old love, and was planning another treasure voyage. The Spanish wreck was not the only, nor the richest wreck, which he knew to be lying under the water. He knew particularly that when the ship which had Governor Babadilla aboard was cast away, there was, as Peter Martyr says, an entire table of gold, 3,310 pounds weight. And supposing himself to have gained sufficient information of the right way to such a wreck, it was his purpose, upon his dismission from his government, once more to have gone upon his old fishing trade, upon a mighty shelf of rocks and banks of sand that lie where he had informed himself. Never was there so haunting a reference to lost treasure as this mention of that gold table that went down with Governor Bobadilla. The words rang like a peal of magic bells. Alas, the pity of it, that Sir William Phipps did not live to fit out a brave ship and go in quest of this wondrous treasure, for of all men, then or since, he was the man to find it. Bobadilla was that governor of Hispaniola who was sent from Spain in 1500 by Ferdinand and Isabella to investigate the affairs of the colony, as administered by Christopher Columbus. He put Columbus in chains and shipped him home, but the great discoverer found a friendly welcome there and was sent back for his fourth voyage. He reached Hispaniola on the day that Bobadilla was sailing for Spain in his turn to give place to a new governor, Ovando by name. Bobadilla embarked at San Domingo in the largest ship of the fleet on board, of which was put an immense amount of gold, the revenue collected for the crown during his government, which he hoped might ease the disgrace of his recall. The Spanish historian Las Casas, besides other old chroniclers, mentioned this solid mass of virgin gold, which Peter Martyr affirmed that had been fashioned into a table. 
This enormous nugget had been found by an Indian woman in a brook on the estate of Francisco de Guerre Miguel Diaz and been taken to Bobadilla to send to the king. According to Las Casas, it weighed 3,600 castellanos. When Bobadilla's fleet weighed anchor, Columbus sent a messenger urging his ships to remain port because a storm was imminent. The pilots and seamen scoffed at the warning, and the galleons stood out from San Domingo only to meet a tropical hurricane of terrific violence. Off the most easterly point of Hispaniola, Bobadilla's ship went down with all on board. If this galleon carrying the gold table, besides much other treasure, had foundered in deep water, it is unlikely that Sir William Phipps would have planned to go in search of her. If, however, the ship had been smashed on a reef, he may have fished up information from some other ancient Spaniard as to her exact location. The secret was buried in his grave, and he left no chart to show where he hoped to find that marvelous treasure, and nobody knows the bearings of that mighty shelf of rock and bank of sands that lie where he had informed himself. End of chapter 5